This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. We often get books written about dysfunctional families, but this one is a bit different. There's three generations and they all question whether they fit not only in a family, but into a society. The book is In Moonland and the author is Miles Allenson. Welcome, Miles. G'day, Jan. Thanks for having me. Your book starts with Joe. He's a new father, which makes him wonder about his own father. So maybe we'll just hear a little bit from page eight. He hated authority. He swore at the television every time a politician opened their mouth to speak. He had strong hands and tattoos of skulls on his arms. He liked to gamble and to drink and to win against the odds, even if it meant cheating. And on more than one occasion, I'd seen him threaten to smash someone's face in with a hammer. And if you were to ask me what sort of father he had been, I would say that he was a good one, that he'd loved us. Though I also know that I was terrified of him, that he had a rage we all feared, and that he was a troubled person with a loneliness that could not be cured. So what happened to Joe's father, Vincent? Joe's father, Vincent, drove his car into a into a tram stop one of those yellow um kind of dividers that used to be used especially along St Kilda Road and flipped the car and died so there was a question about whether that was deliberate or whether that was an accident and that that's sort of not quite resolved throughout the book but so it's 20 years after and Joe decides to find out what sort of person his father had been so the obvious person is to ask his mother but it, he didn't really learn much from his mother about his father, did he? No, it's true. His mother's a little bit vague when it comes to um, that question. She's a bit vague about a, a few things. It's sort of as if she can't think about it herself in some ways. Yeah. So, But she sort of says, well, go and ask his friends. Joe has memories of some of his dad's mates. Watching the boxing on TV with Dennis and Dennis tells him, that he met Vincent through the girlfriend Astra. And when Joe contacts her, she said the last time she saw Vincent, he was drinking and driving fast and had a lot of guns. He had a sort of death wish. And she asks Joe, what did he need to protect himself from? Well, uh, Joe couldn't answer that. And then Charlie, after meeting him and many emails later, Charlie says, I've decided I want no further contact with you. So all of these, his father's mates aren't very forthcoming about him either. No, that's true. Yeah, there seems to be a few secrets, I guess, and maybe that's true of of lots of different relationships. Maybe lots of people don't actually want to go digging around in the past. Maybe there are good reasons for that, to want to steer clear of some of the kind of painfulness of of the past. Now, Joe's got a photo of his dad in an ashram in India and Joe actually remembers one of Vincent's mates from the ashram, Abby, who when he was around the family, it was was like a holiday atmosphere, but Abby disappeared straight after Vincent's funeral. When Joe contacts him, what does Abby want to tell Joe about his father? Uh, not very much. No. No, not very much. <laughs> Abby says he's, he'd prefer not to, to go back there and talk about that. Mm. Um, so he sort of is left hanging there, yeah. Yeah. Joe also finds out that Abby is his godfather 
and his godmother is Rainy, who lives in San Francisco. They all met at the ashram. This brings us to the surprise of part two in the book. Who's telling the story here? Uh, part two is narrated no one no one clear but it's told in the um in the third person um and in the present tense it's a kind of quite a clear shift from the first first part of the book which was told in the first person and so it's it's a it's a close uh third person perspective from from vincent's perspective um which is yeah joe's father now i love the way that vincent chose to get to india through the dice man now hopefully our 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 listeners know about that book but I thought you'd be too young to know about that book yeah I, well, I'm too young to have to have known it's it's true I guess infamy but I, I remember it and I work in a bookshop myself and uh, I also know that my my dad did try and live by the the dice book for a little while no. oh my goodness so he numbered countries to the dice through the six and that's how he ended up in India and at this ashram. Fascinating. By the end of part two, we find out what had unsettled Vincent. Miles Allenson, were ashrams really this wild? Uh, I think this one was. Uh, yeah, this this one definitely was. Um, I, I don't. I can't speak for too many others, but uh, the the Rajneesh ashram in in Pune in India in the late 70s was a pretty a pretty wild place a kind of mystery a kind of mystery school actually people talked about it as then we jumped to part 3 of the book and by this time I'm thinking where am I going to go to now joe like his father makes a very rash decision which will affect his life too so what does joe decide to do Joe decides to leave his family for a couple months and go to India to interview or to to sort of track down Abby, who has who has gone back there himself. And so he he assumes that this will be just a just a short trip, you know, relatively short. And he doesn't realise how long he's going to stay there for. No, when Abby sees him, he sort of welcomes him and notices, and this is a quote from the book, that Joe smiles the way Vince used to smile, but sadder. The outcome of this has consequences. So then part four, and this is Joe's daughter, Sylvie, telling the story. This is in a very different world where technology is all around us and constantly checking on you, as is the police voice and face voice identity checks let's have a listen to how you imagine our future to be please miles allenson from page 203 standing beside the empty swimming pool she spoke to her watch she'd been offline almost 12 hours much more than that would raise alarms the screen shimmered open and she approved connect 185 messages 57 fresh videos 31 calls harlow frida her mum, the office both bar jobs, the government loans office. Her skin suit required updating. Her credit rating had dropped three points. Also new emergency procedures and a bunch of automated government messages requesting her to verify her identity because she'd been offline for more than eight hours. The accumulated messages disgorged their tiny vibrations through her. 12 hours worth, a rush. She sifted for Harlow. Yeah, well, Harlow, she's been living with 
in Sydney in an adults only community. Now between Harlow and well herself, she's got a life changing decision to make. And I don't know whether we want to go into that or not, but this is causing her to drive down from Sydney to Melbourne. And on the way, she drops into her father, Joe. So what's, what's he working as now? So Joe's running a kind of a caravan park, I suppose, for want of a better term, but it's also a, a kind of commune of its own out in rural Victoria for people who can't afford to live anywhere else, basically. Old people who don't have any pension and people whose families can't afford to look after them. So it's a, yeah, it's a, a kind of retirement village, a sort of DIY retirement village. It reads like with a, a few of the, the tablets they're taking and a few of the antics they get up to, like a, an ashram for the elderly. <laughs> and, Sylvia, yes. and Sylvia is surprised at what the elderly get up to. So each generation has experienced living in cocooned societies. Before Vincent entered the ashram, he had to write in a letter. And in that, he asked, who will show me how to love and live? So, Miles, is this what you're questioning here? Do people willingly give up their individualism in the hope of cloistering themselves and that'll make them happier? I don't have any, any ideas about what people should be doing, but I think there are lots of these characters are, yeah, I guess experimenting with what a family is in a way, like what, what is the best way to arrange your, you know, your life and the, and the people that you love. And there are lots of different ways to go about uh, doing that. And not all of them, none of them are perfect. They all have their, their drawbacks. So uh, that was a question that I was sort of interested in, but only sort of subconsciously. I didn't even realise that that was kind of a fundamental aspect of the book until my editor pointed it out quite late in the game. And I was like, oh, that's right. Actually, it is very much about you know, that question of, of how we arrange kind of social units Mm. Now, there's a few references to the moon in the book too, landing on the moon where man had gone all that way just to touch it, to the future of the moon with Chinese mining it. But what's the relevance of the title in Moonland? I'd like to leave that to the, to the audience a, a little bit, to the reader. I, I had the title before I wrote the book, basically. I, I like to sort of start with the title and then work my way towards it. There's a sort of story that Claude Lévy-Strauss talks about where he says that watching the moon landing was, we're, we're sort of reminded that here on Earth, you know, that this is a, both a prison and a paradise and that, that the moon landing was the thing that sort of brought that home to us most clearly. I wanted this idea in one way for the moon to sort of represent this thing that we're, we're sort of grasping for, but we can never hold it for long, you know, all we can sort of do is touch it. But also it also reminds us, I guess, as well, of the fact that we're on a planet hurtling through space, you know, that we're in a larger universe. And that's sort of partly what the what the kind of spiritual kind of questing is in for lots of these characters is to is to somehow come to terms with the fact that we exist in the universe in the you know in the mystery of the universe well you mentioned that you know it's it's about people trying to find out where they fit in into a society and also a family and you have a lot of your characters commenting about parenting joe quotes Parents are only there to be memories for their children. And then his wife, Sarah, thinks Joe is going through a midlife crisis. 
spending a lot of time trying to find his dead father while he was living with two real people. And then there's Astra, who looks at the different ways parents love children and children love parents. That's a beautiful piece. You want to read it from page 72? Parents' love for a child, you probably know this yourself. It's pretty bottomless. It goes down into the guts of the world. But a child's love for a parent is different. It goes up. It's more ethereal. It's not quite present on the earth. Oh, well, I tell you what, I've got grandchildren and I'm feeling that quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Are you? Oh, that's good. I'm glad that you <laughs> that resonates. Um, just one thing, Miles. You're speaking in the Melbourne City Reads. It's coming up Wednesday, the 29th of September at the Wheeler Centre. And people can listen to you speaking with Tony Jordan. They can. And I believe they can, eat, they can also watch it online. It'll be quite a, quite a good little session, that one, I think. Let's hope so. Three generations are looking for inspiration and guidance to find out how to love and live. From the Indian ashram in the 70s to close societies of the future, the outcomes for these three generations lead to very different consequences. Miles Allison looks into the past and future in his novel In Moonland. Thank you very much, Miles. Thanks, Jan. Thanks a lot. And now it's David's turn. The Urn Malley affair was one of the great literary hoaxes ever perpetrated, and it happened on Australian soil. Stephen Orr's novel, Sincerely Ethel Malley, blends fact and fiction, using the hoax as its central core. So, Stephen, welcome to 3CR. Hi, David. We need to briefly encapsulate the facts of the Urn Mallee hoax so we can set the background. So what was the Urn Mallee hoax? So you have an undergraduate student called Max Harris. He's 21 years old, studying at Adelaide University, and he, together with Geoffrey Dutton and two other editors, start this student journal called Angry Penguins. And it's a modernist journal, and they publish very experimental writing and two more traditional poets, James Macaulay and Harold Stewart, and they want to basically show this modernism up as rubbish. So they invent these poems, call them the darkening ecliptic. By and large, they're nonsense poems. They're made up from lots of different sources. But time's been very kind to these poems, and uh, they emerge as you know quite good poems today. They send them to Max. Max thinks they're brilliant. Uh, it publishes them, then Macaulay and Stewart say, ha-ha, we've got you. They weren't really serious poems. It just goes to show that modernism is a load of rubbish. Well, that was their point. But until uh, the end, Max always stuck to the idea that they were worthwhile poems. And uh, they changed things. And they certainly did, because we're here all these years later, 80 years later, discussing them still. Your narrator is actually Ethel Malley. Uh, if anything, she's the least significant figure in the controversy, but you have her narrating this story. She's quite a feisty individual. Well, she is. So um, Macaulay and Stuart had the problem of how to send these poems to Max and get them accepted. So they invent this uh, soldier who dies at 25 from Graves' disease, and then his sister's going through his cases after his death finds the poems, send them to Max. Max says they're a genius. So, I mean, Ethel was the vehicle that they were using to get the poems accepted. Macaulay and Stuart created a whole biography, 
for Ethel and Ern and communicated this with Max. And it's very inventive stuff, very clever stuff. And um, they basically needed a sister because Ern was dead, so he couldn't send the poems. So that was the only function they had. But in the end, you know, these two characters have taken on a life of their own in music, books, plays, everything. You know, they, they've just lived. They were never meant to have that role. They were just a part of the hoax. Ethel herself, as, as I wrote the book, she just grew and grew and took on a life of her own, this sort of modern Prometheus, Frankenstein-esque meets Barry Humphreys, Edna, all of these sort of things wrapped in. She's quite a strange character, I think. But here's the controversy, because whilst Ethel is fictional, Max Harris is real. So you've blended reality and fiction. Yeah, so this was my idea was um, to play things off and see what happened. It was one of the, it's one of the few books I've written where I have really had no idea what's going to happen as I'm writing it. So Colleen Stewart sent the letter pretending to be Ethel to Max. That was the end of Ethel. My idea was, well, what if it wasn't the end of Ethel? What if she was real? What if she went, moved to Adelaide, moved in with Max, helped him publish the poems? And then all of the complications about when Macaulay and Stewart come forward claiming authorship become very complex and hard to resolve. And that's, that's what appealed to me in writing the book is, you know, what would win, reality or fiction? And I just followed my nose on that one. And it doesn't, the book doesn't really resolve until the last page when something strange gives a, your understanding of what's been going on for the whole book. But if we unpack this, what we really find is that you're exploding the myth in some ways because in giving life to Ethel, you're giving life to Ern Malley, the supposed author of these poems, both of whom don't exist. And then we begin to question whether Ethel actually knows Ern, because Ern, according to the narrative and Ethel's exploration, was not who she thought he was. What can you tell us about Ern Malley? As the book went along, I had different ideas about who or what he might have been. So, you know, was he in someone's mind? Did he exist? There's a whole range of ideas, and I throw them all in. It's a bit of an Agatha Christie thing, and I'm sort of asking the reader to try and find evidence about, you know, the reality of Ern Malley, which they don't get till the end. And in a way, though, it doesn't really matter what Ern was. The point was, in the book, your, your idea of trying to work out Ern Malley is our idea of trying to work out what he means and who he was to us as a people, as a culture, and why that, therefore why he has lasted when so many other poets and novelists haven't lasted, despite not even existing. I found that a fantastic irony to explore. And um, like I said, I, I didn't really know myself who he was. The, but I mean, the fact that he didn't really exist in reality, I mean, there, there is layer of, layers and layers and layers upon that, that uh, people can sort of play around with as they read the book. But also then, halfway through the novel, we begin to question, or Ethel's actual existence is questioned. I couldn't believe what I was reading. Now I wasn't real. I, Ethel Malley, was a fictional character. So you actually then expose Ethel almost as, as a fiction. I, I think that's the thing, isn't it, that interests writers is, is what is a fictional character and what is fiction? Because the whole act, uh, you know, this procreative act of creating a character, putting it on a page, and the person paying $30 for this book knows none of this. 
they're buying into that myth you're creating each time. And people have been doing that for hundreds of thousands of years as a species. And I really like that idea of why we suspend belief, why we go along with that, and why we haven't given into the rational scientific world completely, because that doesn't solve all the problems. Only fiction gives us a way of working through those problems. I know that sounds rather philosophical, but that, that very nature of fiction is what I wanted to explore a bit in the book. And poor old Max, who represents us, represents the reader, standing there taking this information in, trying to make sense of it. And we, the reader, look to him for clues and for uh, some sense of logic. And sometimes we get it and sometimes we don't. We also then try to work out who Earn is through the poetry on the page. Can you determine a character by what that character writes or what the poet writes? Because there's a suggestive nature to some of these Earn Mally poems. Yeah, they were, they were basically thrown together from books, bits and pieces. They were nonsensical, but I think the point was Macaulay and Stewart were both quite accomplished poets and like it or not, they created quite good poems. So the poems are there, you can make sense out of them. What, what I also found interesting about this story was if you read them in certain ways, you can get a hint of pornography out of them. And this is what led Max to be summonsed and appear in the Supreme Court in Adelaide in 1944, uh, defending these poems that he, by that point, knew weren't real, they were fake. So he actually had to go into a courtroom and defend fake poems because they might have been pornographic. When you think about it, that's quite an achievement that um, someone at 21 years of age is in, in court. He's being ridiculed all around Adelaide. You know, people gave him a very hard time. They were disgusted by someone who was peddling pornography. You read the poems now, there's nothing particularly pornographic about them. It was just Adelaide was intensely conservative at the time. But it raises that whole notion of interpretation of poetry, because is there a definite meaning to it or is it an interpolation? Is it a, a reading that the reader imposes on it? Quite rightly, it's whatever you want to make of it. It's, it's put out there and you can take it in any way you like. A lot of people took it the wrong way. Um, a lot of people really enjoyed reading it. I enjoy going back over those poems and reading it. And I actually had to use the actual darkening ecliptic poems. And I think they help you make sense of Ethel and Ern and the story and the theme to the story too. But there's an even greater twist then at the end of the book, because we find out that perhaps Ern didn't write these poems after all. How much of the ending can you give away for us? Well, I'm not going to give away the very ending, but I mean, it's quite rational if you think about it. What are the options? Macaulay and Stewart could have written the poems in the barracks on one afternoon, as they claim to. Ethel could have written the poems, but how could she have written the poems? But then again, how could Shakespeare have written the plays? So there's actually quite a lot of options about where those poems, did she steal them from somewhere? There was a, a ex-English teacher living behind her. Did he write them? Was he in as part of it? You can take it any way you want, really. Well, you're actually asking the question of what makes literature in some ways, because you have a reality that's the central core of the novel, these events did happen. Stuart and Macaulay did generate these poems, send them to Max Harris. Max Harris was actually criticised. There were people that actually questioned whether these were ridgy-ditch poems. He was, in fact, tried for indecency. But at the same time, 
you've got the other suggestion of how things should be read. Uh, Ethel's misdirection about who her brother was. So what then is literature? But also then, what have you done to the myth of Ern Malley here? Well, I, I think any writer takes from real life the bits they need, uses them, dresses them up, changes them within the limits of defamation, I guess, and uh, ignores the other bit. But that's what writers have always done. Some people say, oh, you know, the books should just come out of imagination. Um, I think we're, we're all adding to the myth. Peter Carey wrote My Life is a Fake, which, again, drew on this. Um, Richard Flanagan mentioned, I mean, I can, I can list a dozen uh, writers and playwrights and so forth that have used it. So everybody's adding to the myth and building a little bit on it, these barnacles on the jetty pylons, you know, it's just getting bigger and bigger and heavier. Maybe one day the whole thing's just going to fall apart. But, uh, I mean, we don't have a lot of myth in this country, apart from sport, you know, apart from horses and batsmen. So it's sort of good to have other forms of myth that we can go back and look at. And I think uh, hopefully a lot of people read the book because I really want them to rediscover what actually happened back in 1944 and see that it is one of those sort of flexible ideas. Well, if the listener wants to find out about the Urn Malley affair, which I think is something worth investigating, if they want to start to question what makes literature, then they need to read Stephen Orr's novel, Sincerely Ethel Malley, which is in fact based on truth, and it's a Wakefield Press publication. So, Stephen, thank you very much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you, David. Thanks. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.